I want to begin with a question that you probably haven't been asked yet this morning. Would you die for Jesus? If a gun was put to your head and you had the opportunity to deny him and live or acknowledge Jesus and die, what would you do? Or let's say the church was surrounded by terrorists and they forced us to exit the church one person at a time. And they had a picture of Jesus they were holding and they said, if you spit on that picture and if you deny that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you can live. But if you don't, we're going to kill you. What would you do? You may be thinking right now, I don't know what I would do. Would I submit myself to the Lord and say, I'm in your hands. I'm going to entrust myself to you and whatever happens, happens. Or would you ask yourself this morning, you know, I, I really, I don't know, what would I do? What would I do if faced with that situation? It's a question worth asking. Obviously, a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world are asking that question, must ask that question. More importantly than asking it, it's important to have an answer for that question. But as I think about that, I wonder if it's not easier sometimes to die for Jesus than to live for Jesus. Sometimes to die for Jesus may, it may only be one decision, as opposed to living for Jesus, which is thousands of decisions. Dying for Jesus may take only a few seconds, but living for him takes a lifetime. And sometimes that's a lot more difficult. It could be one act versus many acts every single day for the rest of your life. But here's the point that I want us to walk away with today. The most significant point, I think, is this. If Jesus is worth dying for, and I believe that as God's people, we would affirm he is worth dying for, well, then he is worth living for. And I think our passage this morning, that's exactly what we're going to see in Acts chapters 6 and 7. And as always, I'd like you to uh, encourage you to follow along with your Bibles, if you have that on your phone or tablet. If you want to use the blue uh, Bible in the seat back in front of you, you can find our passage on page 914. And what we're going to see is through the brief ministry, the trial, and ultimately the execution of a follower of Jesus named Stephen, that Jesus is worth it. And there are three reasons from our passage why Jesus is worth it. And the first reason is this. The first reason is that Jesus is the message. Jesus is the message. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus is the message of what? Well, Jesus is the message, meaning simply, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He is, according to John chapter 1, the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the message from God to us, the message that you and I most need to hear. The message of reconciliation to God, the message of why we are here, what our purpose is, why we were created. Jesus tells us the way to God. Jesus embodies the truth of God. And to know him is to know eternal life. Jesus is worth it because he is the message of all that is good and holy. And I hope this morning, one of the things you walk away with is that confidence well, right before our passage in Acts chapter 6, before our text begins, there was a problem that arose in the early church in the, uh, the daily distribution of the food that was given to the widows. 
And there was a problem. It was a great idea. They were ministering to needy people within their church, just as we do. But uh, we're flawed human beings, right? Things happen. Sometimes people said, you know, I, I was going to be there, and they got stuck in traffic. Their car broke down. They didn't show up. Or they showed up on the third Sunday thinking, you know, that's my day to serve. Their day was the second Sunday. There's all kind of reasonable things, and you can deal with those on Judgment Day with the Lord. But similar things apparently happened back in Acts chapter 6, and the apostles said, okay, we're probably better off spending our time devoted to the word and prayer. And so they appointed seven men as deacons, and Stephen was one of those seven men. So let's look at our passage here, Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Verse 8 tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power. In other words, Stephen's life put on full display the grace and the power of God because Stephen knew the Lord personally, and it showed. And here's the reality. When you and I know the Lord, when we're walking with the Lord, it can't be hidden from our lives. How you live, what you talk about, the look on your face, your approach to all of life, the grace and the power of God will be on display as you respond to all the things that life throws at you. But not only that, God equipped Stephen rather uniquely for the unique responsibilities that he had given to him. You know, he, he promises to do the same thing for us. He will equip us to do whatever it is that he calls us to do. And we see that in the life of Stephen. Great signs and wonders were the result of that. But the spiritual opposition that we've already seen growing against the gospel in the book of Acts, it continues. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the opposition to Stephen here, as opposition earlier in the book of Acts, is from religious people the religious leaders. Not those who are indifferent about spiritual things, but those who are actually passionate about what they believe. And I think it's understandable for the Jews to have been that way, with the rich history of being the people of God, but also being occupied by the Romans. There was a sense of unity, a sense of identity in being a Jew, and in the temple in particular. Their identity was wrapped up in their religion. But that actually can be problematic, right? Maybe you know people who say, well, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Catholic. And you think, that's an interesting way to first describe yourself. You might think you'd say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. Sometimes that corporate identity, it supersedes the relationship that we have with the Lord. And when that happens, it can lead to a rejection of the truth. 
Verse 9 tells us that there were members of one or two synagogues. They heard Stephen, and they disputed with him. Interesting, the same word was used of those who were disputing Jesus. His opponents challenged him in the same way. But Luke writes that Stephen's opponents, the members of these synagogues, they, they couldn't answer Stephen. They couldn't withstand his wisdom or the power of the Holy Spirit by which he was speaking. And of course, you, you may realize that this is, this is exactly what Jesus promised his disciples. And really, he promised us as well. Don't worry about what you're going to say when you're brought before judges and so forth. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. That's what he says in Luke chapter 21. And again, that promise is still true for you and me. Sometimes we're quiet when God wants us to speak, but all we have to do is open our mouths and God will speak through us. There should be some preparation. There should be some prayer. I've opened my mouth sometimes and thought that was more Bill than the Holy Spirit, and probably the Holy Spirit was nodding as I said that. But he will help us to speak his words so we don't have to give in to fear. And you know the reality is this? The Lord was speaking to his people, the Jews, through Stephen. There are things that he wanted them to know. They need to know. But they weren't listening. They didn't want to hear it. Instead of submitting themselves to the truth of what he was saying, even though they had no answers, they didn't have any response to what he was saying. They, they, could, they could sense the power of the Holy Spirit. They couldn't overcome it. What did they do? They distorted his answers and got him arrested. It's a sad reality. We see it even today. Sometimes we, we are under the illusion that people will reject Christ for primarily intellectual reasons. That's not really what the Bible teaches. People will reject Christ for moral reasons. Characterized by the expression in the Bible, I will not have that man rule over me. God will not tell me what to do. I'm the captain of my own ship. I will decide how I will live my life. And this stands in contrast to the great many of the priests who became obedient to the faith. That's what chapter 6 verse 7 says. It's, it's, it's already demonstrating that this old system that was being fulfilled by Jesus is beginning to crumble. I mean, praise God, a great many of the priests did trust the Lord. You know, how someone responds when they're confronted with the truth, it indicates whether that person is a wise or foolish person. Do they embrace the truth? Do they receive it or do they resist it? Do they hear the truth and then make changes in their own lives so it corresponds to the truth? Or do they twist the truth so it conforms to their desires? That's a warning for all of us as well. So Stephen's opponents, what do they do? They secretly instigated men. They set up false witnesses against him. They had no answers, but they felt they needed to protect themselves and even to justify themselves. And they justified lying in the process. Again, a warning for all of us if we're unwilling to hear what the Lord is telling us. So what did they accuse Stephen of? Speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, further defined as speaking words against this holy place, which was the temple, and the law. They said, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, he will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, for us sitting here in 2018, we may think, that's not a big deal. I mean, why are they getting so worked up over this, right? Some issues about the temple, about Moses, not a big deal back then, certainly not a big deal for us. But actually, it's a very critical deal. It's really going to the heart of the gospel. 
It was certainly important enough for Stephen to die for, right? He could have retracted his message. He could have changed it as soon as he saw them getting angry. And it was certainly important enough for the religious leaders of his day to kill Stephen for. They understood the implications of what he was saying. And also, you may not know that this is actually the longest speech in the entire book of Acts. So Luke felt like it was important. The Holy Spirit through Luke obviously feels like it's something that we need to know. Addressing these two accusations is the purpose of Stephen's speech. But notice that when he began his speech, you see what it said at the end there? Luke said that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Isn't that cool? I don't think it means that he was really good looking. I think in some ways there was a, there was a heavenly glow. The glory of God shone on the face of Stephen. And I think that was such a wonderful way of God to confirm what it was that he was going to speak through Stephen. I think he was even an act of mercy to those who were going to listen. But they didn't get it. They didn't pay attention to that. So here's a pro tip. If you are having a theological argument with someone and their face is shining with the glory of God, you are likely on the wrong side of the argument. Stephen's response, as you can tell from the passage, is a long one. Can't go through it all this morning. 52 verses in all. And in it, he recounts highlights of Israel's history. He emphasizes the sovereignty of God. He also emphasizes the failures of God's people. He spoke of God calling Abraham and promising to give him the land of Israel as an inheritance. He spoke of the 12 patriarchs and their betrayal of Joseph and of their enslavement in Egypt and God's rescue through Moses. But to kind of summarize this whole speech, really there are three things that are emphasized in in, uh, Stephen's message. The first is that God is everywhere. This was important because they, they misunderstood the omnipresence of God, the presence of God everywhere because of their focus on the temple. And he he needed them to understand that their view of that was wrong. And so we're going to get into a little bit about why that was. Number two, God's messengers, including their hero Moses, were rejected by God's people throughout Israel's history. So here I think he's, he's warning them, don't fall into the same trap. Our people have a history of rejecting those that God has sent. And they, of course, had already rejected Jesus, but it wasn't too late. And then third, his third emphasis is that Moses prophesied about Jesus. So he wanted them to know that this Jesus that I am preaching was actually prophesied by Moses. So what I'm saying about him doesn't run contrary to what Moses has said. It actually is exactly what he was talking about. So let's go through these a little bit. The first one is that God is is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And and Stephen shows that by mentioning that he appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, miles away from future location of the temple. He was with Joseph in Egypt. He appeared to Moses at the burning bush in the desert. He appeared to his people after the Exodus. In other words, God's presence isn't limited to the temple. He can be with his people anywhere. Now that seems obvious to us, and probably it was obvious to them on on an intellectual level. But the way they viewed the temple, the way they protected the temple, indicated that their view of it was not completely biblical. And then Stephen, probably in the most forceful way, he quotes Isaiah 66, and this is what he says. This This is the Lord himself speaking. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? The Jews' perspective on the temple, it left them with the risk of putting God in a box, so to speak. They exalted the temple above the God of the temple. In fact, the language that Stephen uses here about even the temple being made with hands and idols being made with hands, it's actually suggesting that they have treated the temple like an idol. I mean, you can begin to understand why they would be so angry at him, right? God gave us that temple. How dare you accuse us of making an idol of it? But idolatry is still a temptation for us today. And in his response, Stephen is trying to help them understand something. He's trying to help them see the proper role of the temple and ultimately how Jesus is the one true sacrifice. He is our true high priest and all of this points to him. This is why it's so critical. Every religion in the world essentially says you can get to God by what you do, by being as good enough as possible, doing every good thing that you can do. And what we're seeing is, is Jesus came and said, that's, that's not it. All of this, the sacrificial system, this was all pointing to me. Jesus is fulfilling that. The second point in Stephen's sermon is that God's messengers, including their hero Moses, were repeatedly rejected by God's people. And it's interesting because he mentions it three times. One thing he repeats in verse uh, 27 of chapter 7. You remember Moses, uh, when he's still in Egypt, he sees a couple of uh, Hebrews fighting against one another. And he's breaking them up saying, why, why are you fighting? And the one says, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And then again, a few verses later in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, this is Stephen speaking, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. He was, he was sent by God to deliver them from Egypt. And if you're familiar with the story, you realize, yeah, they, they were excited at first, and after a while, not so excited about him anymore. And then probably the most important one is in verse 39 of chapter 7. Stephen says this, Our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They turned away from the Lord. They turned back to slavery in Egypt. And then you may remember, they asked Aaron to make a golden calf. What did they say? It's almost funny the way they said it. You know, Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And he'd been up there for 40 days. And they said, as for this Moses fellow, we don't even know what's happened to him. I mean, it's like they just got introduced to the guy. As for this Moses fellow, we don't know what's happened to him. Make us a golden calf and bring us back to Egypt. Stephen is trying to help these people understand, you know, look at our family history. Not so good. We've missed God's messengers. We've rejected God's messengers a little bit too often. He's setting the stage, I think, to warn them, ultimately accuse his opponents of doing the very same thing that their forefathers had done. Reject God's messengers. And in fact, in uh, chapter 7, verses 51 and 52, he hits this theme directly. This is what he said. And as you can imagine, this did not go over well. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. In other words, no part of you wants to listen to God. No part of you is dedicated to the Lord. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now just pause for a minute. Peter preached something similar before. And the response of the people was different. They, fe they felt guilty. They sensed that they were responsible for 
the crucifixion of Jesus. And they repented, but not these guys. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. It's a reminder to all of us, even those of us who walk with the Lord, that there are times when we are simply resistant to the will of God. We simply do not want to hear what he has to say. You know, you see in Stephen the boldness that was prayed for in in Acts chapter 4. Stephen is powerfully connecting the rebellion, the, the, the rejection of God's messengers in the past with their rejection of Jesus Christ the righteous one, but in their pride, they would hear none of it. They weren't even open to the possibility that they could be guilty of the same thing, and yet they were. The third theme in Stephen's message is that Moses prophesied about Jesus, and that's what it says in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Again, wanting them to understand that far from rejecting Moses, Stephen, in embracing Jesus, was actually embracing Moses more than they were. It was his opponents who were rejecting Moses because they rejected the one that Moses had prophesied about, Jesus. So, what does this all mean? Why is this important? As we look at his lengthy response, and I have to confess, and maybe you would feel the same way, there are times in the past that I've read Stephen's response And I thought, "Uh, I don't get it. I don't really get why you're doing this. And then why did you get him so mad at the end? Like, why did you just really fire him up, you know? You could have just kind of explained this and maybe gone on your your, uh, merry way and come back later on. But this is the heart of the gospel. This is so important that, that Stephen was saying, Jesus is worth it. They need to hear the gospel. Jesus changes everything. Jesus' coming changed everything. And we absolutely have to understand that. You know, there's a sense in which these false witnesses were right. They said that Stephen and Jesus, they're going to change the custom of Moses. And in some sense, they're, he, they said that he was going to destroy the temple. He wasn't going to destroy the temple. But he did change the customs of Moses. You look a little bit later on in the book of Acts, you see it in two significant ways. One is what they began to teach about circumcision, no longer being necessary. Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised in order to be followers of Christ. And you also, in Peter's vision, God cleansed the food that had previously been prohibited. Those are not small things. And the Jewish people were not stupid. They understood what was being said. They understood that Jesus is coming Jesus' teaching was relativizing the temple. It was undermining their religion. And while Jesus was referring to his own body when he said, destroy this temple, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again. I will build it again in three days. He was speaking, of course, of his own body and his resurrection in John chapter 2. His death and resurrection did mean that the temple was no longer necessary. That's what it meant. Look at what happened at Jesus' death uh, to the temple. Matthew chapter 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
The temple, the, the, the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Listen to what one commentator said. I, I love the way that he, he put this. He said, when Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, that heavy curtain was torn from top to bottom. It was not ripped from bottom to top as though a man were ripping it. Instead, it was ripped from top to bottom because God was ripping it. God was saying, you are no longer on the outside. You can come in. My son has made a way for you. Isn't that amazing? Every one of us would have been on the outside. Could not be reconciled to God on our own. God ripped the veil, gave us access to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. Don't think I came, came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So here's the thing. Jesus is the message. It is all about him. The temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the prophets, the scriptures. It's all about him. Jesus is prophesied throughout the Old Testament. It is all about him. That is what so many people in Jesus' day missed. And we're missing in Stephen's message and what so many people miss today. The reason that Jesus is worth it all is because Jesus, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, is everything. He is everything. He is everything you and I live for. He is everything you and I desire. He is everything that has meaning and eternal significance. No temple, certainly not a temple made by human hands, is greater than God or could contain God. The temple is the shadow. Jesus is the reality. And you may remember just a few decades after Stephen in this, this passage that the temple was destroyed by the Romans and it was never rebuilt. God would not have allowed the removal of the only access people had to him unless he had provided a new way. And he did. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is the new and eternal temple. In fact, look at what Revelation 21, 22 says. John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Isn't that awesome? The temple was destroyed. That's not a sad day. The new day has come. The reality is here. We're not going to be sad when we get to heaven because we miss earth so much. The new heavens and the new earth the new intimate relationship with God is available to us. Jesus is the message of the Bible. Jesus is the message of hope, the message of love, of forgiveness, of union with God. He is the word of God. That is the message that Stephen spoke about. And Jesus needs to be the message of your life. He needs to be the message of my life. When people see us, and they say, what is she about? What is he about? Jesus. Because Jesus is worth it. And the second reason Jesus is worth it is because Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model for our lives. You know, Stephen died for the truth of the gospel. He believed that Jesus was worth it. And by saying that Jesus is the model, I mean that Stephen's life was clearly modeled after the Lord Jesus's. And ours should be as well. Isn't it true that ever since we were little, we heard things like, oh, don't be like him, he's a bad man. Or why can't you be more like your sister? Like it or not, we pattern ourselves after the people that we admire, for good or for bad. Some people even go to the point of having multiple surgeries to look like people that they want to uh, 
be like? I mean, how many, otherwise, how can so many people look exactly like Elvis Presley? That's, that's not a coincidence. Sometimes, of course, the resemblance is unintentional. I, I've noticed this in my marriage uh, where Carmé would say, you walk just like your dad. That was just like your dad. And I'm like, you watch the way my dad walks? Why do women notice these things? Huh? But then I said to her, I said, that was just like your sister. That was just, who did I marry, Carmé or Sarah? That was exactly like Sarah. It just sort of happens, doesn't it? You're kind of in an environment and you pick that up. But Jesus is worth it all because his life is the perfect model for us. And we really, we see that in the life of Stephen. As I read uh, verses 57 through 60, just as I'm reading it, make the connections in your own mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to identify some of them. But where do you see Jesus in the life of Stephen? But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. So they've heard his defense. There's another part that happened afterwards we're going to get to. They, they don't want to hear it. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at, at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, probably loud so they could overcome the, the yells at him. He wanted people to hear this. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, it, it says he fell asleep. We know that it means that he died. People are throwing heavy rocks at you. It doesn't make you sleepy, right? He died. Why does it say he fell asleep? I just think it's a beautiful picture of the fact that he just went into the presence of the Lord. And we're going to see in a minute what Jesus was doing, how Jesus revealed himself before Stephen, to Stephen before he died. And it is just a beautiful, beautiful picture. There are several parallels that we can see between Stephen's life and Jesus's, and I want to just go through them quickly. Uh, you're not going to have a chance to write them down. If you want, I can give you the notes at some point. But I just think that if you, if you listen to these 10, it's like, wow, Stephen's life was patterned after Jesus. Both were full of God's grace and power. Both humbly and sacrificially put the needs of others ahead of their own. Both were doing great wonders and signs among the people. Both taught God's word in such a way that their opponents couldn't refute them. Both were arrested for teaching God's word. Both were charged with blasphemy by the religious leaders. Both committed the testimony of false witnesses. Both suffered, I should say, the testimony of false witnesses. Both committed their spirits to God at the end of their lives. Both asked God to forgive those who were killing them. And both gave their lives to bring people to God. Some of those parallels are ones you and I can't make and some we hope that we never have to experience. But here's my question. What are going to be the parallels between your life and Jesus' life? What are the parallels now? As people look at you, as if you were to be described to someone, what things could be said about you that are said about Jesus? So people could say, yeah, Bill's life is modeled after Jesus. I see that. Consider what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 2. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Right? Pause. John's going to tell us. This is how we know that we are in the Lord. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. He is our model. He is worth it because there is no better model to pursue. 
And our Heavenly Father is making us more like Jesus throughout the course of our lives. We are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another, according to 2 Corinthians 3. And ultimately, we will be like him. 1 John says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Isn't that amazing? Pause for a second. I don't know about you, but I can't stand a lot of things about myself. Thank you for not verbally affirming that. <laughs> I did hear some of my children do that, actually. I mean, aren't there things about you that you don't like? If you're not sure, ask me. I'll tell you. If I know you, I've got some things, right? There are things about myself like, oh, I'm so Why do I do that? Why do I think that? Why do I say that? It's coming to an end. Jesus is worth it because a wholehearted pursuit of him will make us like him. Wow. Jesus is the model for how we were to live our lives. Stephen modeled Jesus' life for us, but he didn't do it in his own power. And I want to remind you again that one of the most important themes in the book of Acts is that God empowers us by his spirit to do everything he calls us to do, to fulfill his mission in the world, but to be like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of God's people, and he is moving us. He is pushing us at times to be like Jesus, to do what God calls us to do. All we have to do is yield to him. Don't resist him. So study Jesus. Walk with him. Learn from him. And strive to be like him because he is worth it. And the third and final reason that Jesus is worth it is because Jesus is the motivation. Jesus is the motivation. Knowing him and being with him is greater than life itself. There is no higher motivation for anyone to live their lives. And when you and I see that, when we really grasp that, then you and I will spend our lives seeking the Lord. Do you realize it's really that simple? What you and I are spending our lives now seeking is our motivation. It's what is really the most important thing to us. We have to believe this. Let me ask you, have you ever heard the question, what is your why? What is your why? It's a motivational principle. I'm sure some of us, maybe many of us have found it helpful. When you know your why, like why am I doing something? It, it's your purpose. It's the reason for doing it. And when you know it, it's usually something big or significant. That knowledge can empower you to fight for it no matter what obstacles come. Your why your reason for doing something, it needs to be significant. There are little ones in our lives, right? You, your why right now for trying to lose 15 pounds, maybe because your high school reunion is coming up and you want maybe people to feel a little bit jealous of you when they see you. Yeah, no one's ever done that. I'm sorry. I, don't know. I Googled it and this is some other church. Maybe your why is because uh, you, you want to go back to school because you have a dream of being a nurse. And so that's, that's, that's your why, this dream of being a nurse. Or let's get spiritual. Maybe your dream is, I'm, or your, your why is, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Why? Because I am so tired of not having any answers when my non-Christian friends ask me. That's your why. Your, your why motivates you to overcome pain and discouragement and setbacks and rejection and failure, anything else that would stand in the way of reaching your goal. And I think what we see before Stephen died, is that he had a very clear why. 
Very clear why in response to, is Jesus worth dying for? Look at beginning in verses uh, 44, 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Can you picture that? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That was his why. Stephen saw Jesus. Stephen saw Jesus not sitting, watching what was happening. I think Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, ready to embrace Stephen into heaven. And in that moment when he saw Jesus, he realized he's worth it. He's worth it. These people grinding their teeth at me, these people that are going to go after me and kill me, maybe with a few words I could calm them down. Maybe if I deny what I believe is true, maybe if I don't say what God has given me to say, I can save my life. But he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus and he said, no, no, no. No, I don't want this. I don't want a few more years on earth. It's dusty, dirty, it's sinful. I want him. I want him. Jesus is my why. Jesus is my motivation. What a way to go. My friends, you and I need to have a vision of Jesus so that he is our why for everything that we do. He is our why for how we spend our time, how we spend our money, whatever it might be. I mean, think about death that way. Don't think about death as the end. Don't think about the suffering part of death. Think about Jesus standing with arms open wide waiting to receive you. Stephen had the courage to die for Jesus because he had the courage to live for Jesus. And he was already doing that. In other words, Stephen understood our theme this morning. If Jesus is worth dying for, he is worth living for. And as followers of Jesus, all of us must have a God-directed why. We have to have a God-directed why. Why do you do what you do? You know, we're all going to word it a little bit differently, but I think we all should have one. In fact, if you don't have one, now you have a homework assignment. Ask God for a God-directed why. Ask him to help you write one out. And so let's say your, your why is, I want, my, I want my life to show people how wonderful God is. That's it. I want my life to show people how wonderful God is. And maybe you're even thinking, hey, that's a pretty good one. Well, the Bible says don't steal. It's mine. Make up your own. <laughs> Pray about it. Think about it. What do you want to motivate your life and I would caution you against creating multiple whys for different reasons of your life, different areas, because God is the Lord of all of our lives. And when our why is big enough, it is God-directed, it is God-glorifying, it covers every single area of your life. It would even cover why you would go back to school. It would cover why you're trying to lose weight. It would cover why you're reading the Bible and so forth. Everything that we're doing directed to a God-exalting why that motivates us to seek him. If it's why, if your why is you want to show people how wonderful God is, that will impact how you treat people, how you walk, how generous you are, how kind you are, every aspect of your life. You know, some of Jonathan Edwards, he was a pastor theologian, 
from the 1700s, he came up with these resolutions when he was a teenager. Some of those would make for a great why. There's one that has always stuck with me. I must have heard it 30, 35 years ago. It's uh, his 22nd resolution. It says this, that he was resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. I love that. I want to be as happy as I can be in the life to come. That's what he said. And that's really because Jesus is worth it. The greatest commandment says that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Being the church, not just here when we gather together, but in the 167 hours outside of the sanctuary means that we are putting that belief on display in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the message. It's all about him. Jesus is the model. He is the one we are called to be like. And Jesus is the motivation. He is our why. Because he is worth it. Because if Jesus is worth dying for, and I hope that you affirm that, that you affirm that he is worth living for every day that God grants us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We're first perhaps drawn to the example of this great man, Stephen. But I pray that our eyes would quickly move to your enablement of him. He was no different than we are. Your spirit can empower us to live this same way because Jesus is worth it. May the message of our lives, may the direction of our lives that we are modeling it after Jesus. May the motivation of our lives, the why for what we do, how we do it, may it all be for your glory and the exaltation of your Son, who is eminently worth every effort we can make. In Jesus' name, amen.